Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Well, we're going to take a break from 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'll be speaking at a conference this coming weekend. So guess what you get to hear this morning? <laughs> I'm going to, uh, as they say, uh, kill two birds with one stone. That's maybe a little harsh, so we'll say I'm going to encourage two audiences with the same message. I'll put it that way. <laughs> so, um, so I want to talk this morning on promoting Christ, not self. And that's what um, I'll be talking about next weekend as well in Kentucky at the Berean Bible Fellowship Conference um, in the context of the local church and how the local church functions. And so this is the uh, subject I have. And I was given multiple passages on this topic, and they primarily deal with, in the local church, the issue of those that sometimes come along and promote self over Christ and get a following. That We read the passage in Acts chapter 20, I'll refer to it again later, where Paul had to warn the elders about those that would come from without as savage wolves, but also those who would come out of them and lead people astray, lead people uh, to follow themselves rather than Christ. That's a very real problem in, in the professing church. But when you get into this subject, you've got to lay more foundation and get to the heart of what's behind all that. And so that's the hope this morning as we talk about promoting Christ, not self. We will uh, be looking at multiple passages uh, to kind of bring together these principles. <clears throat> uh, you know, it, when, you f- when you read the New Testament, you read the Gospels, in every one of the Gospels, there's two individuals that are very prominent when you read any of the Gospels. Uh, they, each one of them begins with the, the story of these two men. And, and one of them, we all know, because he's the main point of all the Gospels and all the New Testament and all the Bible, and that's Jesus Christ, right? But right before him, there was another individual. What was that individual's name that made the path straight? John the Baptist. Wakey, wakey, are we up out there? <laughs> and I want to think about John the Baptist for a moment. You know, when, when John the Baptist came on the scene, God had been silent for 400 years. There was no recorded evidence of any prophets in Israel. From the book of Malachi to when John the Baptist shows up and starts calling people to repentance, there's, there's no evidence of any other one sent of God. 400 years of silence, God not saying anything. And within that 400 years, it was pretty turbulent, as much of Israel's history was. After Malachi wrote, after they had built the second temple, God sent no other prophet. And it became, it, it, it became kind of a dark time as the years went on. Israel was never a sovereign nation, really, in there. They were kind of thrown about between dueling kingdoms, and eventually the Romans came in and, and put them uh, under a level of oppression. The Romans ruled over them. And all the people really had in that time was the words that God had left them and the promises that he gave them. And so the years just continued to roll by as they were kind of left in that darkness. And then, going back to John, a child was born 
to a priest. Uh, the angel Gabriel came and, and heralded the birth of John the Baptist. And it was said of John, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was what was said, as, I mean, even before John was conceived, it was said of him that he would be this great individual. Could, could you imagine if that's what an angel had said something about, about like that about you before you were born? That's a lot to live up to, right? That's a lot to live up to. And, that, when, and when the angel Gabriel appeared, that was God breaking that 400 years of silence. And it was to announce this child, he's going to be somebody. So John grows up, and then you st- you're introduced to him in every one of the gospel records in the New Testament. He comes on the scene. You know, he shows up. He's eating locusts. That sounds like a great guy, right? He's wearing, what does it say? He's wearing, wearing skins. He's eating locusts. It's not what I would have had. That's not what I, what I envision when I read that passage I just read about. This guy's going to be great. <clears throat> but he, was, he lived in, hum, he lived in uh, a state of humbleness. <clears throat> and actually, Jesus Christ was born about six months after John. Of course, he was heralded by angels as well, as we well know with the story we talk about around Christmas time. But John was to come first. That was the purpose that God gave him. You know, and that's, that's really a special thing to think about. So John, John comes on the scene, begins his public ministry. He's calling the nation to repentance. He's traveling around as an itinerant type of speaker, baptizing the Israelites in the Jordan River and, and saying all these things. You know what's interesting about John the Baptist? He never performed a single sign or miracle. He never did a one. And it's interesting, God said he would be great in the sight of the Lord, yet he never does a miracle. He's going to be like Elijah. Elijah did a lot of miracles. John didn't do any. It's interesting. He never had any of those wow factors. Even when Jesus came on the scene, right, he begins his ministry by turning water into wine. Everybody at the wedding said, amen, (laughs) you know, basically. He said, that's a good stuff. And then he got, he got invited to all the weddings, no. <laughs> um, but no, John never did any of that. But he was called great anyway. And that was because he was great in his faithfulness. He just, he followed the Lord. He proclaimed the message God gave him. He just continued to move forward. And there happened a time later in John's life, after the Lord had come on the scene and, and the Lord had been revealed... And the Lord was in one place, and through his apostles, he was baptizing people. And some people came to John and kind of like, hey, doesn't this bother you that this guy's over here baptizing, you're baptizing here, and now he's over there baptizing, and, and uh, kind of stepping on your toes, isn't he, John? You know, kind of moving in on your gig here. And that's when John the Baptist says, to me, one of the most powerful utterances in the Bible Uh, in a lot of ways, he told these individuals, he said, part of his response was, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And it's in John chapter 3, 30 and 31. So that's what John said to that. When people would think, well, John, don't you feel threatened? Don't you feel like, you know, this guy's hurting your ministry, hurting your reputation, perhaps? And, 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 you know, John would know. He's why I'm here in the first place. (laughs) This is the one that I was saying was to come. And, And I love that statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. And I start with that story of John and those words because I really think that's the reality that each believer has to come to in their own life, is that ultimately I am here for Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's, it's not about people calling me great in the sight of the Lord. It's not about me uh, putting notches on my Bible or my helmet, whatever you want to say, like keeping score what I've done for the Lord and achieving great things and, and racking up points in heaven or anything like that. The spirit-filled attitude toward what God calls us to as a Christian is he must increase and I must decrease. And that's what the Lord wants to do in each of our lives. He wants to increase in each of our lives as we decrease. He needs to become more promoted, if you will, per the title. He needs, to be, he needs to be shining out of our lives as you and I die to self. <laughs> we decrease. He becomes more and more the Lord's of our heart, the Lord of our heart, just like he was for John. And so as we think of this subject, the idea of promoting Christ, not self, the first thing we have to know is that this starts in my heart. That's where it starts. It doesn't start at church when you get there Sunday morning, and now it's when we start it. No, it starts in your heart. This is where Christ must be promoted over, the, over self, in the heart first. And so we're going to talk about that for a minute and talk about what I'll call the internal battle. The internal battle that really affects everything else going on in our lives. What's going on in the heart is going to come out. And we understand as Christians that there is an internal battle we all face. Uh, the, the Galatians tells us our, the spirit of God wrestles against our own flesh. There's this internal battle going on in the Christian's heart. That's one way it's described. And it's about walking after the Spirit. It's about yielding to the Spirit so that that flesh can be defeated in our daily lives and that Jesus Christ can have the victory in our lives and be coming out of our lives That's as in the form of spiritual fruit in a transformed life. I mean, one of the primary ways that the Spirit works in that battle is to conform us to the image of Christ and bring out the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what Galatians talks about, again. Um, and so that's, there's this battle going on, and we're told that as Christians. And so we have to understand it's, it's where our heart's at first. That's what's going to determine what comes out of our life. And there's a passage... And let's just go there in our Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. 
And I just want to read something Paul said. I'm going to read a few verses, I think, from Philippians today. But Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to start reading with verse 19 and read through uh, 21. And Paul says this. And he's talking about his house arrest in Rome and so forth. And he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of of the spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness as always so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death Paul in house arrest and he's in he's Rough situation, rough circumstances. We'll talk about that more maybe toward the end. And he says, what I care about is that Jesus Christ be magnified in my life. Doesn't that sound kind of like John the Baptist saying he must increase and I must decrease? Jesus Christ must be magnified and me not so much. And then verse 21, which shows you, this shows you into the heart of the Apostle Paul. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ. That's Paul's heart. And, and that's what I, I, I take us here to start is, the grace of God unleashed in the human heart brings you here. This is where it brings you. I want him to be magnified, even if it costs me my life. For me to live is him. He is my life. He's the source of my life, the purpose of my life. It's all about him. And so, so much of the Christian life is simply coming to that reality and trusting that and and letting self die, in a sense. Die to self daily. Paul says that in one place. I die daily. He had all these sufferings of Christ. You know, you know, you don't hardly read about anybody in the Bible that suffered as much as him. Jesus and Job would be up there, obviously. But Paul suffered, and he, he, he enumerates that at times. And he went through shipwrecks, and he was stoned, and he was beaten. And, and his body was just broken for serving his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that all was because of the work that Jesus Christ did in his heart. And renewed him and was transforming him from the inside out so that he lived out this reality in his life. This is, this is the questions that the Bible gives us. It's always the question of the heart. What's going on in the heart? That's where everything starts. You could phrase it different ways. I think of the idea of who is on the throne of my heart? Who is on the throne of my heart? We talked about that in 1 Corinthians and some weeks ago with, with, as they wrestled in uh, idolatry and different things. But who, who is on the throne of my heart? Who do I live for? Who do I give my heart to? These are questions, whether people realize it or not, they answer. Every one of us answer these questions to some degree. And it comes out in our life how we've answered those. What we live for is what sits on the throne of our heart. And as Christians, again, back to the internal battle, internal battle, Jesus Christ is to be Lord there of our life, of our whole heart. We're to be 
letting him work through us. The, the challenge is the flesh is right there, and self wants, self wants what self wants, and there's that battle going on. But it's always about where's the heart. All through Scripture, that question comes out. God created Adam and Eve in a perfect garden of Eden, and man's heart was led astray by the serpent. God intervened in history after that, and each time man's heart rebelled against him. God chose a special nation with amazing promises, and the heart of the people wandered from him, went after idols, let others rule over their hearts and their lives. And God, throughout the history of, of his word, revealed eventually his plans for the new covenant, which is to give man a new heart and put his spirit within him because that's what it takes (laughs) that's the only solution is to give us a new heart through Christ that's what the new covenant talks about I think of when it was the lawyer I think who came to Jesus and asked him what are the two greatest commandments you know probably thinking which one of the ten how do you rank the ten commandments And, and Jesus doesn't even mention any of the ten Instead, he says the greatest commandment, and this is in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Because if that's there, you don't have to worry about the other ten. Because <laughs> that's, that's what it is. And then he says, then, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. In other words, this is what it's all about. God's got to do work in here. This is where God's focus on the heart within. That's why it has to start here. Anything we love more than Christ becomes an idol of the heart. And it directs us away from our Father and our Lord. And that's what we all, we all have to answer those questions of who are we going to let be on the throne of my heart? Who, am I going to trust the Lord to, to, to work in my life, to lead me where he wants to lead me, to be magnified, to increase? Or do I, am I going to hold on to self and the flesh and what I want? And along with this idea of what God's doing in the heart, it brings me to the next thing I want to talk about for a little bit. And that is the idea of resting in the love of God. We're still within the heart. There's the battle going on, spirit versus flesh. And we have to to give the reins to the spirit, to, to Christ, and let him do his work. So he can produce what he wants to produce in us. But resting in the love of God. This is another maybe say a facet of what God's doing within. Each of us has to come to the place in our walk with the Lord that the love of God is enough for us, that God's goodness is enough for us, that God as my Father is enough for me. Because if I never come to that place, I will always be looking for something else. And my heart will be led astray into something else. We have to rest in the goodness and love of God our Father. 
You know, Romans 5, 5, real special verse, and I want you to turn and look with me to Romans chapter 5. This is a well-known passage. I'll just read verses 1 through 5. Pull out the old Ed Bedore card and read Romans 1, 5, 1, and 2 <laughs> while I'm here. That's a BBI joke if you ever had Dr. Ed Bedore as your instructor. And Romans 5, 1, and 2, we went there in every class every, every week it seemed like, but it was good. But I want to focus on verse 5, but let's start in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that is encapsulating everything Jesus has done for us. He's putting us in this position of grace. We have access to God the Father through him. And then he goes on. And not only that, it's kind of like, and guess what else you get? Tribulations! (laughs) Tribulations! <laughs> you get to suffer. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. So you, you, you really have to believe verses 1 and 2 to experience verse 3. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't get a pass go. <laughs> so to speak, in the Christian life. If verses 1 and 2 aren't real to you, the grace that he's given us, the, the peace we have with God, the relationship we have in him, then it's going really, to be really hard for you to glory in tribulations because you're going to have to see the hand of God in all that, the goodness of God and all the love of God in all of that. And that's what Paul's bringing out because verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Isn't that something? The love of God poured out into our hearts. You remember Jesus, he said the two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart and love others as yourself. And Paul says, but really it's God who has to pour the love in. (laughs) That's where it's got to come from. He's got to fill you up with himself. He pours the love of God into your heart. That's a result of you trusting in his goodness and his love for you. He fills you with that. And then it starts to come out of your life. And so when the pressures of life squeeze, like the tribulations he talks about here, what comes out is the love of God and how you react, how you respond, how you treat others, maybe even how you treat the person that's maybe seems to be part of the squeezing. The love of God can come forth toward others. And so we have to learn to rest in God's love for us as our Father. You know, we know every soul that comes into this world is searching for love, acceptance, significance, purpose. And when you look out to the world, that's what you see everybody going after. That's what they're looking for. Every place they're looking, every dark alley or whatever, that's what they're looking for. Because each person was made in the image of God and is made to live in fellowship with God. And if they're 
separated from God and their hearts are far from God, then they're going to look, they have to find a substitute. This is how we are. It's just the condition of being human. We're going to be looking for those things. And what God would will is for us to come through Christ and find those things in him. That's what the gospel declares to us. Jesus died so you Jesus died showing God's love for you so you could be accepted by him in salvation and then for have your purpose in him living for him. He answers every need of the heart through Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is so powerful because whether people realize it or not it's what they're looking for. But instead we see humanity Again, because their heart is far from God, they go everywhere else. We look for some other God to worship. We create our own version of God. That's what happens in humanity. That's the history of humanity. I've said this before, but God made man in his own image in the garden. And, every, and ever since, man's been trying to make God in his image in creating some alternate version. And whatever religion or cult or whatever you're talking about, you'll find some God in the place of the true God. And even for those that claim to be non-religious or atheist or whatever, well, we still have a God. We just are a little bit more honest about it. We call it self. And again, that goes back, who's sitting on the throne of my heart? For so many, it's self, right? And again, that's what the gospel frees us from self, frees us from the condition of the heart. But even in the church, we, start, we can see this come out at times that maybe... Maybe he's not on the throne of our heart. Because we, we see it, we still find, even in the church, we find men who place achievement over the hearts of their children. Uh, we find women striving to be captivating to men who don't know how to love sometimes. Children, we find, desperately seeking their father's love and attention. I mean, that's what goes on in the world, but oftentimes you find that in the church. And it all goes back to Resting in the love of God. And we thank the Lord that even though the world is a mess, and that mess sometimes comes into the church in all kinds of ways too, but Jesus Christ saves. Jesus Christ loves unconditionally. Jesus Christ is the answer to every need of the heart. Jesus Christ redeems souls, rebuilds lives, recreates families, and revitalizes his church as he fills the heart of the believer who rests in his love. That's who we have to offer to this world in need, the one who can do all those things. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that kind of love that I'm talking about here that comes out of a person's life when they rest in the love of God, that's part of the story of my life. It's part of how I came to know Christ as my Savior. Because in my early teen years, and not really sure what life is about and where I was going, and, and kind of just moving through without much direction, I was introduced to a group of people through my grandparents in which I found acceptance. I found love. I found, through their words, what my life was about, significance and purpose, as they directed me toward Jesus Christ. They weren't perfect, as none of us are. But the Lord used them, and because I saw God's love and acceptance come through their lives, it pulled me in. 
it pulled me in more. And the Lord used that. And then ever since, as, you, as we all make that journey of faith, continue to learn you know, the idea of resting in the goodness and love of God and letting him be on the throne in my heart. So that's where it has to start. It has to start in my heart. And then again, we, 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 we want to jump sometimes. Again, I, I, I go this way because he's talking about promoting Christ, not self. You immediately want to jump into the church. What am I doing in the church? What's my ministry? Who are my people? What are we doing? You know, it's, no, 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 no. That's, that's over here. There's, the Lord puts other things in front of that. There's, a, there's, a, there's sort of a pathway here. First of all, what's going on in your heart as we've been talking? And then, for a lot of us, and I'll say especially us as men, and I say that because next week I'll actually be talking to the men only. So I'm holding back on you a little bit. <laughs> but, but even all of us, but as men especially, it starts in our heart. It next has to be a reality in my family. That's, that's the calling God puts in front of me first. And for, before you go, you know, getting down, getting your, rolling your sleeves up, you know, do you want to do something over here? Make sure this is in order. Make sure this is coming out in your life here first. This is, this is how God designed it. It's not me. It's, it's what he said. So I need to live it in my family. That's where we go next. So we're going to explore a couple, some other ideas here. Because in, in all of this, you know, this, this is, I think, how it's supposed to come out of our lives. I don't, I don't want to say it's like steps, but in a way it kind of is. There is sort of an established order of how these things are coming out. It starts in my heart, my individual relationship with the Lord. Now, what about my family? What about, you know, God said, <laughs> Jesus had said again, love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's the second commandment, right? It's what he told the, the Jews. Are you loving your closest neighbors that live in the same house as you? How does that look, right? How does that look? And that's where we have to go next in the idea of promoting Christ, not self. And we'll talk a little bit about God's desire for marriage. God's desire for marriage, because this is what it's all about. Well, back to the title, promoting Christ, not self. That's what it's all about. It's what marriage is about. It's what family's about. It's what life's about. It's what the church is about. But there's something special about the institution of marriage because it's the first human-to-human -human relationship that God instituted in human history. He made Adam, he made Eve, he brought them together, and there was a family. That was the first, some of the first things he did. Before there was a government, before there was a nation, there was a, a marriage and a family established. Adam and Eve came together, and they became one flesh. And so they were to learn to live in love of one another, husband and life, wife, living as one. And it's in that relationship that God intends to display the very aspects of his character and nature, his love. And there's so many scriptures that speak to that in the Bible, but we'll just talk about a couple. Ephesians 5.22, I mean, we know Ephesians 5, that's the primary one in Paul's epistles. Ephesians 5.22 calls wives to submit to their husbands as the church does to Christ. And we, we know, we talk about that verse. I always like to bring up that 
In the Godhead, there's submission. God the Son submits to God the Father. In the perfect triune existence of God, there exists a perfect fellowship in perfect harmony. And there are even concepts of submission and love, and those things are going on in the Godhead. And so when it comes to human relationships, those things are going to bring out those aspects of who God is. And so marriage is intended to glorify God as he is. So we have the call to the wives. Come alongside, submit to your husband, show, show respect. In Ephesians 5.25, a little bit later, he calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That Those both are such high callings. They are impossible in the flesh. Self cannot do these things as all of God's calling. Self can't love someone selflessly. That's where we need the Spirit's work in our heart, the power of the Lord unleashed in our hearts. And if Christ is not sitting on the throne of my heart, if it's not real in my own heart, then when it comes to marriage, it's, it's going to harm our marriage. It's going to come out. Because when, when life squeezes, the tribulations come, and they come in marriage, and they come in any relationship, is it the love of God that's squeezed out? Or not? <laughs> or self. Self, what self wants, self-ambition, self-fulfillment, which turns into complaining and all kinds of things we could talk about. A lot of people, it's been said, I'll say it this way, a lot of people have said over the years, and I've heard it from different people, but uh, you don't usually, a lot of people, you don't know how selfish you are until you get married. <laughs> you don't know how much self is entrenched in your heart sometimes until you get married, and you're called to selflessly love this other person. And it's like, God, have you seen this other person? <laughs> That's what you feel like at times, right? And you really, But if you're looking in the mirror, you'd be pointing the finger at you. At least we should be. But again, only, only, uh, only unconditional love will work in a marriage because that's what's intended for a marriage. And so if you don't have God in your heart and that love that he gives, it's not going to be able to be a reality in your marriage. And so we've got we to gotta make sure we understand these things. If we want the kind of marriage and family life that God intends for us, again, it's, it's got to be real in our heart first. We have to understand the grace and love of our Heavenly Father first. And then, as we do learn those things and we grow in those things, that marriage can be this huge beneficial impact on those around, primarily the children within that family, right? A marriage reflects the love of God. As it does that, that will benefit the children because it's giving them the picture of who God is. We understand that children look to their parents and primarily their father to really have an understanding or picture of who God is. We were just talking about that in Sunday school. You know, God calls the fathers throughout the Bible to teach their children about who he is. And part of that is living it out. He told the fathers in Israel, teach these things diligently to your children. He tells the fathers today to bring your children up in the admonition of the Lord. It's God's desire that children have this family unit to pour into their lives 
the truth about God being lived out through their parents. Now we know, we could all attest, a lot of us did not come from such a place. A lot of us don't have that, didn't have that opportunity. But God's grace is sufficient. He brings other people into your life to help you learn and grow. But just because it doesn't always happen, don't dismiss the ideal that God has in mind, what his plan is. Don't dismiss it, if it even if it's not what you experienced. Because it's what God wants to do in your life. It's what the things, kind of things he wants to change in our lives. The husband who loves his wife in the view of his children and loves them, loves them as well, creates a positive picture of who God is. The husband who does not leaves his children with a less than positive picture of God, obviously. We know every soul makes their choice ultimately in whether they're going to trust Christ or not. But as parents, and especially again as fathers, we often are the catalyst for which occurs, whether children walking with the Lord or not. So we want to be understanding these things as we, we move forward in the, in the life that God has called us to. Starts in the heart, it needs to come out in our marriage and our family next. And as you, you think about family in Scripture, again, it's, it's God's intention that things start with the individual, then into the family, and then into the larger context. I have the next thing to talk about here, the pathway of godliness. Let's turn to 1 Timothy for a few minutes. 1 Timothy. We're starting to move closer and closer to the church functioning now. 1 Timothy and chapter 1. In 1 Timothy, Paul basically gives an outline of godliness being formulated in a local church. He, he kind of, this is what it looks like. And so he begins with sort of the charge to Timothy, continue on in the grace of God, continue on in these things. So you've got to have a foundation of who Jesus Christ is and the grace of God. And then in chapter 2, before he gets to leadership and, and everything else after that, he starts with talking about godly men. That's where he starts. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.8, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 8, for example. One of the things that Paul says in 1 Timothy, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, without wrath and doubting. He starts with the men. He starts with the men of the church that, again, we just, we just basically see God's design and order here. But he starts with the men of the church. And these things that he says here, again, are indicative of what goes on in their hearts. It's not just a list to do. It's, it's the outpouring of what God's doing in the heart. Praying for others, being concerned about others, not with wrath and doubting. And that's probably talking about infighting amongst themselves. It's probably the wrath and the doubting there to me is probably what happens when the godliness isn't there, when their hearts aren't full with God. It gets into selfishness. It gets into fighting and all this kind of stuff. People wanting to, to be in charge. People wanting to uh, stand out, be special, whatever you want to say. But he speaks to the men first, and then in verse 9, 
he says, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women, what? Professing godliness with good works. And I mainly want to focus on verse 10. He says, godly men, godly women, okay? And if you have godly men and godly women, then what you ought to have, to some degree... Godly children, it's not mentioned, but that would be sort of the, you know, indication. So you can see, what, what does he tell Timothy to focus on? Before he gets into everything else with the church, where's the families going? Where are the families going? And then, after he addresses the men and the women, then he talks about elders and deacons and the leadership structure and, and he also talks about how the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. But my, my point is, before he gets to the church being the pillar and the ground of truth, he says, men and women being what God called them to be. That's where we've got to start, Timothy. We've got to build up the men and the women so that you have the godly families. The point is that churches, godly churches are going to largely be built on godly families. I've seen, I've seen people at times get excited about what they learn in Scripture and everything. And they're excited about certain, certain things about the faith. That's all good. But I could even picture individual, individuals in my head that really struggled to bring along their wives, to bring along their children. They were excited about what they knew, but they didn't know how it translated into their family life at home. Godly churches are going to largely be built on godly families, and that takes godly men. These are men who promote Christ, not self, who follow the word and not the world, who walk after the spirit and not the flesh, who prioritize loving their wives and speaking God's truth to their children. That is what is best for any church. Because these Families become the kind of godly families that strengthen the testimony of the local church and provide the hands and feet of the gospel, the grace of God. If we lose sight of the importance of the family, the church is always going to be the weaker for it. So there's a pathway of godliness that God has in mind. Start with the individuals. Bring it to the family. Husband, minister to the wife. A wife can minister to the husband. Both can minister to the children in that way. And, and, and then you've got a unit now. And then you get multiple units together, you get a pretty healthy church going. And, the, and it just strengthens what God intends for the local church. Now again, I didn't experience that growing up. I didn't experience what a godly family was. But even so, God brought people into my life. I mentioned a little bit, there was a group that accepted me where I was at, began to teach me. I learned a lot. That was used of God to kind of boost me to think about ministry and end up at, at, at Berean Bible Institute to come up here. And, and eventually led to the direction where I met all you wonderful people. <laughs> you take away that group, you never would have known who I was. You ever think about that, like the, the butterfly effect? You know, that, that thing that happened in your life. 30 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever, and it, and it brought you ineb- inevitably to where God has you now. And you just marvel at God's work in your life. But he has an intended pathway for godliness. And again, just because if you and I didn't experience 
don't let that be an excuse not to pursue it as God calls us to pursue it in his grace and love. So when it's reality in my heart and it's a reality, it's becoming a reality in my family, that's going to strengthen the church. And now let's look at how this is lived out in the church or as I put it here, to live it out in the body. I do need to live it in the body. And I'm just going to talk about two things here that speak to me as I think about promoting Christ and not self. We know that one of the biggest problems in the church is self-centeredness. It's the biggest problem anywhere you go. It's the biggest problem in my life. It's my own self-centeredness at times, right? But it obviously uh, comes out in people. If you haven't caught on by now, people have a natural tendency to promote self. <laughs> and we call pride. We call it arrogance. We, we get in the flesh. We know, we, we know what we're talking about. We can all get caught up in that in our personal lives and family, and we can get caught up in that as a local church. And there's probably not hardly a church around that doesn't have a history, sometimes a sordid history, of when this very thing became the reality of self-winning instead of Christ. Instead of he increasing, somebody's ego or opinion was being increased over Christ. A lot of churches have felt the ruin of those kinds of fights and, and such. These things can become detrimental in our church, and in some cases can even become nearly cultic. Uh, you, you have, again, sometimes men rise up. Going back to what Paul said in Acts twenty thirty, men rising up looking for a following. He said in that passage, Acts 20, verse 30, to the elders of Ephesus, a church that Paul himself planted and established, he said, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. He tells it to the elders. There's people coming from your group that are going to want this more than Jesus Christ, and they're going to pull people into followings. There's other places Paul deals with that issue that comes out. He, he talks to the Corinthians about, one of you says you're at, you're at, you are of Paul, another says I'm of Apollos. Was Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? No, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And so when people have the ideas of it's about the guy, it's about my favorite guy, or it's about this teacher or this author, and we've got to be careful with those kinds of things. Hopefully every true man of God will say, he must increase, but I must decrease. We've, but we've seen the opposite many times, very often. Uh, men like a following. But Paul, if we're going to look to him as our example, Paul, he championed the preeminence of Christ. And I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. He championed the preeminence of Christ. Even though he was the chosen apostle, he was the one God sent, that Jesus Christ sent into these Gentile territories. He's the one that established the churches. He was the forefather of a lot of groups. And it would be right to honor a man's work and, 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 and ministry, to honor those who have sacrificed for you. It's, it's worthy to honor that. But even so, Paul... He always made it about Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1. Let's just read verses 14 through 18. 
And this is talking about Jesus when we get to verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's always to be number one in our life. And so to, to, to those that want to promote self, that would rather have a following, these words should be heeded once again. You can't, <laughs> you can't help but read that passage and see Paul's heart. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's not about what I can do. And as we come together as a church, as a body, this is what he desires, us to have this shared perception of who Jesus Christ is. He's number one in our lives. So he's going to be number one in my personal life, number one in my family life, number one in my church life as well. It's not about me. It's about him. So when I come to the local assembly, when I come to be around other believers, I'm not coming to take. I want to come to give. I want to come and serve, not to be ministered to, but to minister. That's my heart. That's my desire, as I think it was for Paul. Why? Because of what Jesus does in my heart. The last thing he told those elders in Ephesus that we read earlier in the scripture reading, that we read, he said something else, but we stopped at, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is the heart of God. That was the heart of the Apostle Paul. That's what God wants to work in us, that we want to be givers first. Because Jesus Christ is first. So when Jesus Christ fills a heart, as he did Paul's, we want to simply bow before the Lord in our daily lives in awe of his love and grace. And we can showcase the preeminence of Christ in our lives as we simply come alongside others and serve and minister to them. And I have to mention someone that um, I think about in this context, and that's actually my father-in-law. A lot of you know him, and if, if I were to think of different ones in the body who I see an others-centered approach, he's got to be at the top of the list. I, I, the guy will just about do anything for somebody. He'll serve people. I've seen him sacrifice repeatedly for others. I see, I've seen him up on a whim you know, drive 90 miles to help somebody move once. I mean, just, just because, and it's, you know what it is for him? It doesn't, it's not about achievement. It's not about what somebody else thinks. It's not about trying to keep score with God and try to do, make God happy with him. But if you know him and you're around him and all, you can just see this guy loves Jesus Christ because he understands the love of God. He feels it, he lives it out, and it comes out in his life. It, when things are squeezed, that's what you get. And I've seen him sacrifice to self uh, so often. I don't know that I could think of anybody that would surpass him in that category. I'm not saying be more, I'm not saying pass him, but I don't know about, I, I mean, there may be others equal, but I don't know if anybody's ever passed him. He seems to have endless energy, but it's just the grace of God at work. 
And I know he's one of those guys that he, he wants to get up at 4 a.m. And, and get into the scripture and just be with, be with his Lord. And I just appreciate that, appreciate that example. But I, in his life, I see the preeminence of Christ. I see God's work in his heart. I see a man resting in the love of God. He'd probably be embarrassed if he, if he knew I was talking about him, but, but I appreciate that example. One last passage I want to read to you, and this is just in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. The preeminence of Christ helps us to have a right perspective of what God wants to do in the church through you and me. It's about him. We come to glorify Christ, magnify Christ. He must increase. And every every area of our lives, when we come together as a church as well, if the Lord lays a ministry to you, this is the attitude he's looking for in that ministry, one of humility, one of dependence on God, one of letting Jesus Christ work in and through us. And in Philippians chapter 1, Verse 6, Paul says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have to understand the work of God in our lives, in our hearts. Any ministry, any service in the context of the body is ultimately God's work in and through us. It's not, again, it's not about achievement, accomplishments, checking off lists. It's about what God's doing in and through you as you simply respond to him in faith. Something that Paul told the Corinthians, they were fighting over who was the best, who they were going to follow, and he talked about Paul himself and Apollos, and in 1 Corinthians 3, 4, and 8, he said, for when one says, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. Where did it come from? The Lord gave it. If I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Who gave? God gave. Not them men, but God gave. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's how God wants us to approach ministry together. It's God's work. We need each other. We're a body. But you and I are merely vessels in the master's hand. We must yield to him. We're not given our lives for ourselves, but as opportunity to be used of God where God places us. And he again desires to fill our hearts with himself and work through us in our families, our workplaces, our communities, and our churches. And as we do, the light of Christ can shine out into this dark world. And I'll just remind you, I'll close with this thought, again with Paul in the book of Philippians. I I think of him often in, in this situation as an example for many things, but it's just powerful to me, is when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, and he was without his freedom in a, under house arrest in Rome, and short on money, and short on resources, and having to rely on people to send things to him, to be able to have a living, and his body again had been battered over the years that he gave to the Lord in so many different ways that he talks about in, in the epistles, so many things he suffered for Christ. And so as a, 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 a worldly man would have been destroyed by then. You wouldn't have been able to go through what Paul went through. And I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if a person would have survived it. Just emotionally and in, 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 in the internal chaos it would have brought up. But he went through that life. He did all that. And he was sitting in Rome becoming an old man. 
And he writes a book to the Philippians. And he's talking about rejoicing all things. And God's working in and through us. And God works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Hey, and if something's bothering you, if you get anxious, pray to God. That's what I do. As he sits in house arrest in Rome with all these circumstances. And he's not even sure if he's going to live or die at the time. He thinks he's going to live, but he's not sure. And so with all of that going on in his life, he knew how to take his cares to his father and experience God's peace in his heart. And after 30 years of ministry, which is how many years he'd been in ministry when he wrote that book, he said something to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 10. He wrote, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul still wanted to grow. He was still in love with the Lord, wanting to know him daily. And I just I picture a man in those circumstances, he writes that. And that shows you a heart set free of self, a heart that just so into the, the, the blessedness of who Christ is, the preeminence of Christ, and knowing that God still works. Even if my hands are tied, God still works. And so may he continue to increase in our lives. Father, thanks for just your word and, and who you are, Father, as your word reveals to us. We see a loving Father that just wants us to trust him and trust his goodness and walk with you in our lives and let you use us and let you do a good work in us and in our hearts. And may that just be the reality so that when it comes time in our marriages, in our family, in our churches, we are the people you call us to be because you are filling our hearts. Father, that's our prayer. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.